So if you expand the way that you think about this and then make sure people understand that learning is its own reward, uh, it, you liberate people to do more than what they think they're supposed to do, which is punch the clock and do only the tasks that are uh, essential for getting today's work done today. You, you've got to give that permission and some of those, those resources and expectations so that alongside, as they're doing the work, they're, they're building in some learning opportunities as well. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. Back in December, Lisa Blanton was on the podcast to discuss the importance of succession planning. We all agree that having a deep bench of potential future leaders is important, but some of the most common ways of implementing a succession planning process may not be as beneficial to the entire organization as one might hope. Joining me today to discuss why traditional succession planning tools might not be the best way to ensure that our firms have the leadership needed to thrive into the future is Deb Calvert. Deb is president of People First Productivity Solutions and founder of People First Leadership Academy. She works with clients to build organizational effectiveness by developing leaders, improving team cohesiveness, and strengthening soft skills. And she says there is a better way to identify and prepare our organization's future leaders. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Deb. Thank you, Mike. I am truly honored to be here. I so appreciate and respect the content that you're giving us uh, throughout the HR world. Thank you. So let's start by talking about how most organizations conduct their succession planning. Uh, that's what seems to be broken. So let's let's define that problem first. What does that look like? Well, I, I think most organizations come into this with very good intentions. They want to allocate resources appropriately. They want to provide development opportunities, and they want to create bench strength so that they've got a, a reasonable way to fill slots that are going to open in the future in those, those key leadership roles. So what most organizations do is some variation of what Jack Welch introduced over 50 years ago, back in, in 1970, uh, he was working with McKinsey, and at GE, they, they created this thing called the, the nine-box model. So the nine-box model, it's a, a visual representation. It's, it's a framework for talent review that's used for succession planning. And in the typical nine-box model, there are basically two variables that are being mapped out for, for employees. The first variable, the first uh, item that's looked at is around employee performance. Ideally, and it's not always done at this level, but ideally, uh, employee performance is a set of objective and quantifiable measures. And you take a look at how well did each employee being rated in this system, how well did they perform in, say, the past year or whatever the time period may be. It has to be objective, though, otherwise it becomes subjective, and that invites all sorts of, of issues, which perhaps we'll talk about. But the second variable, in my opinion, it's the one that is um, a little more problematic. And that second variable, going back to the 1979 box model, that was to take a look at the potential of that employee. 
the potential, which of course is purely subjective. But when you put those two variables together, the, the nine box gives ratings for high, low, and medium in performance, high, low, and medium in potential, and you come up with only nine combinations, the very best of those, of course, is high po, high per, high performance, high potential. The lowest is low per, low po, low performance, low potential. And then you've got people in, in those other boxes like medium potential, high performance, and, and so on. You end up with nine categories that you end up boxing employees into. And that's widely used. It's used for succession planning, uh, who we're going to invest our development dollars in, for example. Um, it's used in some cases in performance review. It's, it's part of the annual review process. Um, it sometimes is used for transparently sharing with employees how they're seen by others. More often, though, it's used behind the scenes. The, the leadership team, the management team, and HR tend to know who's placed in which box, but most employees aren't given that information. They don't know exactly how they're seen or where they stand. And so, and we're going to have in the video version of the the podcast on YouTube and Facebook, we'll have we'll have a graphic of that. Uh, but just so everybody understands, basically across the x-axis of the uh, of a grid, uh, you've got uh, performance, and then on the y-axis going up on the side, you've got potential and your best performer, highest performers, high potential people are up in, in the right-hand corner. And the people you should probably have already managed out of the organization, your low performers, low potential, are in the, the lower left-hand corner. And then there's that array between the two. And you mentioned that uh, there's some challenges to that, especially on the potential, you know, identifying those potential leaders. Uh, and the one that comes to mind, you know, you mentioned it, and I think it's often the, the truth is that it's so subjective. Uh, how do we measure, you know, what, you know, what's your hard measure for pet, you know, whether somebody's a potential leader, it's, it's usually anecdotal. This has been my experience with this person or, or we, we sit down to have our discussion about our, our next generation of leaders. And I had a really good interaction with this particular employee last week. And so they're top of mind. So I've got some recency bias there. And suddenly they can't, you know, they've got that halo effect and they can't, they can't do any wrong. So what are some other kinds of challenges with, uh, with, you know, putting the, you know, the, the people in these boxes, the way that, and, and I'm sure in the ideal world that none of us live in, there are ways to account for all of these, but in the reality, we just know that most, most managers and leaders aren't, aren't, aren't playing, you know, uh, you know, 100% by all the rules all the time uh, and, and doing everything we would love them to do in a perfect world. So having said that, so what are some of the other challenges you see? Well, let's face it, we're human. Yeah. So we are going to uh, inadvertently allow things like familiarity bias or recency bias and other unconscious biases to influence our judgment. Familiarity bias happens anytime you're thinking thoughts like, oh, she reminds me of a younger version of myself, right. right? And that should be a red flag, but it's not. It, it's, it runs rampant in, in this process, whether it's in your own mind or whether it's out there on the table. And I've, I've certainly seen both. L let me talk about the, the most alarming sort of, of problem that there can be. 
Um, you know, I was referring to GE and Jack Welch before, and, and popularly they had the model, which was the 20, 70, 10 rule, right? We're going to have 70% of people in these middle boxes. We're going to have 20% of, of people in our three highest boxes. They're higher performers. They have higher potential. And then we've got that 10% at the bottom. And that 10% at the bottom in, in Jack Welch's world, right, they just were eliminated. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a process. You just get rid of that, that 10%. And so what this caused was forced ranking. Right. There can only be so many petite people in those high potential, high performance boxes. And that forced ranking, stack ranking, has actually been challenged in, in courts uh, rather successfully. That, that's found to be a process that's subjective and arbitrary, and it allows for discrimination. And that's why Ford and Microsoft and Accenture and a lot of others have, have dumped those, those ranking systems. So if you're allowing your nine box model to play out in that way, um, let that just be a caution. Well, because we all we all we've all seen the bell curve, right? And when we try to, and a bell curve is a statistical set of averages, and when we try to apply that to people or really anything, we you know as, to assume that we're going to break out really, you know, along that bell curve is is a fallacy. It just it never works quite that way. I mean, the eighty twenty rule is a good rule, but it's not always you know, gospel either. And, and so we need to, uh, we need something a little bit more defensible, but just something that doesn't waste our resources, right? You bet. You bet. Now, yeah, the, the bell curve is all, all people. Let's say you're really good in your organization at hiring. Your bell curve, it, your curve isn't going to be exactly that bell curve, or maybe you're terrible at hiring and you're going to have a, a different sort of a curve entirely. Um, but, but we should talk about, okay, so what's the, the, lesser, right? we're not going to have you in a, some court uh, paying big fines, but the day-to-day, -day, right? What are the, uh, the more likely sorts of scenarios that play out? Well, let's talk about this one, right? If you're labeling people hypo, low per, hyper, low per, right? Mainly, if people know anything about these conversations, if they know anything at all about this bucketing, what most people really feel is popo. They feel passed over and pissed off. <laughs> and that is a problem, Right, that, that's a big problem because you're you're at this point in time you're trying to avoid the great resignation and the quiet quit. You right. need people to be engaged. You don't need them to feel tapped or capped by some arbitrary process that's really subjective. So, potential, as you said, Mike, it, it's super difficult to identify. I, I mean, think of this: none of us even know our our own potential. Yeah. My, a good friend of mine who's a psychologist says we're all always underperforming. There's always, you know, and so, and if you apply that, if you recognize that in yourself as a leader, you've got to apply it to your employees too. And there's got to be ways for people to improve their performance. And somebody could be really high potential if they just had the right coach or the, the you know, the right exposure to the right information. So. I agree. I mean, I think a philosophy of how do we tap into the potential that everybody has, right? How do we bring out that, that undiscovered potential? How do we ignite a spark within people so that they can discover and unleash their own potential? That is different from trying to determine and label what level of potential somebody may have. So the, the changes that need to happen, I mean, let's face it, what, what else from 1970 in business still exists besides this model? Right. <laughs> Not much. Right? Maybe it's time for something fresh and new, something that's less subjective, something that invites less of these unconscious biases 
and that dignifies people and, and recognizes that every single one of us does have potential. And we're really putting all our, it can lead us to put all our eggs in one basket, right? We're going to put all, you know, dedicate our best training dollars and effort into this group of employees. And even if they are all high potential, that doesn't mean they're going to stay in our organization, right? And so um, we, you know, while it's always advisable while anybody's in the organization to make them the best employee and contributor that you can, if you don't do that for everybody, you, you risk losing those, you know, the ones you, you, you designated as your A players that you really needed to keep, they can go someplace else. Those are the ones who can write their ticket, you know, anywhere else. And so do you really want to put all the, your eggs in the, those one basket? And I think that's a real yeah, And it's heartbreaking. I heard this just a few weeks ago, again, uh, when someone says, well, we don't want to do too much in the way of developing because then they may leave. So yeah. <laughs> what's your alternative? Yeah. Don't develop yeah. people. And then how do you, how do you do anything for your own Let's future? not grow as an organization at all. Other right. companies. Right. right. Nope. And then if I'm the employee and let's say I'm in an organization where the succession planning is top secret and maybe we haven't even communicated it to the high potential, high performance people, but we, um, we, but suddenly they're the ones getting, all the conferences, they get to go to the conferences. They get to go do the educational stuff. They're getting, they're getting a coach. They're getting this. And if, if we haven't communicated anything, uh, any logical reason for any of that, then suddenly, you know, employees are always going to look to understand why they're not getting what they think they deserve. And short of a reasonable explanation, they're always going to assume it was something unfair and based on, Age, gender, race—you know, national origin, what college I went to—you uh, know, anything like that—and um, we don't need a whole bunch of employees having those conversations in an organization, especially when it, they're not even founded or, or, or valid. But short of an explanation, you, they don't know what is valid. And. Sadly, we're also not communicating to that person who appears to be favored. So they can't even explain when people ask them, hey, how come it's you again? Right? And, and, and they can't replicate or, or bring out more of whatever it is that we're favoring and, and that we've put that halo effect around. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll get into how we communicate these things later. But you know, if, we, if we don't just go on a handful of leaders' opinions about who are our high potential, high performing people, our future leaders are. Um, what what Im would improve that process? Would 360 feedback improve that? Or are there other things that we should be monitoring or measuring uh, to get more objective in that process? Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of 360 feedback, so long as it is with a valid evidence-based instrument. I think a lot of organizations do 360 feedback in a way that is inviting more problems. They, they don't quite know which questions to ask. They put people on the spot or cause people to feel that it's an unsafe situation. So I, I would encourage using a, a validated instrument, one that provides true uh, confidentiality for the, the observers who respond. And ideally, it's behavioral. Because if you're observing, giving me feedback about my characteristics, well, I, that's I am who I am. That's a little harder for me to go and change. I, I, a personality transplant isn't on the uh, availability list at my doctor's office. So, but if it's behavioral, right, I can make choices. What do I do 
differently? What do I do more of that would make me more effective? That's actionable. But I think there's another, yeah, another way to go about this too. And that is just a, a little reinvention, a modification of that nine box model that so many organizations are married to. And it involves replacing the y-axis. And so we're going to keep performance metrics, the ones that are objective, the ones that are, are true and, and consistent across like jobs. And instead of trying to measure potential, which is subjective and, and just not a, a smart thing to do, in my opinion, um, we're going to replace that with how people go about doing their work. So our performance measures, the x-axis, that's what they do. It includes the amount they do. And then you've got on your y-axis how they go about doing their work. And this too can be objective so long as you put it in, in a thoughtful written process that you share openly with folks. We're talking about getting the right results, what, the right way, how. And that would include things like these are our expressed values in this company. Here are the actions, the behaviors that represent those values, observable. It could include something like professional standards. We have certain things that, that express in a, in a clear format, right? the exemplary, the, the acceptable and the unacceptable levels, something that, that very objectively expresses how we go about doing our work here. And that becomes the second variable that you measure. And you can still have a nine box, but now it's one that's objective and objective. And collecting that behavior-based kind of information how do you go about doing that objectively uh, without getting into that same that same risk of just changing the words? But my, you know, as the man, you know, I'm the manager, and I've got I really like this employee, and I've got a gut instinct for whatever reason, and so I say, oh yeah, you know, she uh, she lives our values every day. She's super, you know, always acts in the best interest of the customer. Always works as one with, uh, you know, you know, with the team with compassion and respect. Uh, you know what? I'm just going through our values, but I can see where it'd be easy, short of something, you know, uh, really objective, to make it just to replace the language from high potential to behavior stuff. So how how would you how do you go making that more concrete? You have two things that, that you need to do. The first is that it's in writing. So these examples and these behaviors, they don't come from you, Mike, the manager. They come from us, the organization. And, and now you're just making a comparison uh, as you would with performance. Right? You're making a comparison to see where the fit is. You're not making up the words or the ways mm -hmm. that the value is represented. And the second thing is that it's not an annual process. Perhaps the roll up and the nine box and, uh, piece of it is, but monthly or quarterly. You are, as a manager, capturing examples, and those are, are something that you bring back into the annual process. You're not just trying to remember a whole year, but in writing, in a system somewhere, uh, the HRIS or whatever it might be, you have uh, in included on a much more regular basis some small pieces. It shouldn't take as long as the annual review. It should actually make that process take a, a lot less time if you're, if you're capturing this along the way. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the research information, visit 
goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select Episode 79 and enter the keyword Potential. That's P-O-T-E-N-T-I-A-L. On February 8th, I'll be hosting a webinar entitled Mitigating Bias in the Employee Selection Process. We'll discuss the most common ways bias sneaks into, or is baked into, the recruitment, interviewing, and selection process, and systemic changes that can help mitigate bias in selecting employees. This free webinar is approved for one professional development credit for SHRM certified professionals and one hour of general recertification credit for HRCI certified professionals. You can register for this free webinar at imperativeinfo.com. And if you're listening to this podcast after February 8th, you can still watch the recorded webinar on our website for credit for free. And now back to my conversation with Deb Calvert. One way I think we could probably, I had Andrew Pryor, who's the CHRO at ECI Software on a while back. And in their organization, they've, every employee has some number of credits that are actually have actual dollar value to them that they can uh, award to their peers for living out their values. And they've got an online system on their intranet to do it. They all, they're, they're mostly remote now. They were all on person pre-COVID. Now they're all, you know, and but they've maintained that process. And so an employee, if I have a, a great interaction with a, one of my peers who helps me do something, I can say, you know, Joe really lived the, this value by doing this and this and this. Boom, it takes me all of three minutes, you know, to do it in the system. But now that manager, HR, uh, and the employee all have these records, you know, I'll have this, this exposure to this one interaction that they wouldn't have known about otherwise. And I think it's, it's one, each one's got like five or 10 or $15, something uh, associated with it. And so over time you can build enough to go buy, you know, buy, you know, a gift of, uh, you know, something of that, that you personally would value. Uh, and so I think that's one way to start collecting that. And in fact, we're, you know, in my, even in my small organization, just a little over 20 employees, we're looking at how we can implement something like that. Uh, Cause we do shout outs, but, you know, uh, trying to find something more concrete to record, record that. So I think that's one way you can do it. Have you seen other ways of, of collecting those anecdotes? You know, you can also get some some self-assessment here. And I wouldn't mm. do this in a formal process once a year either, but I'm really a fan of stay interviews mm-hmm. so or one-to-one meetings. You, you could do something similar as long as you're asking the question. Tell me an example of a place this month where you feel like you exemplified a value. Um, tell me something that happened this month where you felt like you had room to, to do things differently. And let's work together to, to make sure you um, can do something differently in the future. It, the transparency, what we're both talking about is, is an openness here and making it part of the culture that these aren't things that are hidden. Right. They're out in the open and we're all supporting one another uh, to, to be able to bring this out. And so once we have that model, and I think we'll probably put a graphic in here at some point uh, with with that model as well. So uh, if you're... Uh, if you're listening to the audio, you can go find us on YouTube or at goodmorninghr.com uh, or look in the show notes and we'll probably have links over to it. But um, so we've got this new model and we're going to we're going to implement it to and we so that we've used that to identify who are high potential or, you know, our best fit for future leaders is probably the, you know, the people that uh That doesn't mean, though, does it, that we're just going to invest only in those folks for education and and development? 
I hope not. Um, you know, there are actually a lot of free and and low cost programs and internal things like uh, peer mentoring. There are so many options for developing all the people in your organization, which is a great retention tool and a smart business strategy. So yes, it takes a little time and maybe you have to put a little thought into it. But here again, in a stay interview process, you're asking people, what are your goals and what are you accessing and and what do you need? And, And putting people in charge of doing some of that for themselves. And it can be not just the hard skills of the job, which you may have to direct a bit more, but it can be soft skills and it can be leadership development and, and it can be uh, other learning about other parts of the business to develop business acumen. So if you expand the way that you think about this and then make sure people understand that learning is its own reward, uh, it, you liberate people to do more than what they think they're supposed to do, which is punch the clock and do only the tasks that are uh, essential for getting today's work done today. You, you've got to give that permission and some of those those resources and expectations so that alongside, as they're doing the work, they're, they're building in some learning opportunities as well. And I think that 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 process and that feedback year round is in, in real time, especially on, on the soft skill, the people skills, when we identify somebody's got a shortcoming, either training them there. And I think we underutilize, well, because we don't, we undertrain our frontline managers. They could do a lot more coaching in a lot of organizations and really identify quickly. Hey, this is an issue that this employee has. And either here are resources I can directly steer them to, or I need to work with them one-on-one to make them make sure that they better understand the behaviors that we as an organization value and, and make sure we're incentivizing those correctly uh, and getting rid of that annual, you know, we got rid of the annual performance review in our organization a long time ago. Everybody has metrics. They know how they're performing on a day-to-day basis. They walk in the next day, they get their productivity and, and quality numbers. Uh, and, and as I said, we share shout outs and, and, and uh, recognize one another. And I think even at a quarterly basis, you know, trying to, collect this data, you know, retro, you know, retrospectively after three months of data, 12 weeks of data is you're never going to remember the right stuff. You're just going to remember the, 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 you know, the thing that either made you the maddest or the happiest. And, uh, that, you know, those are often not indicative of the entire quarter's performance. Right. Absolutely. And that's where the unfairness comes in. Right, the the halos and the horns and the favoritism mm-hmm. and all the unconscious biases happen when we're we're trying to look at something too narrowly. And so we we've probably in every organization have high performers, people who are really good at that job. And I've certainly, when I was in corporate America, like you, had experiences where somebody was an excellent. I came out of healthcare, was an excellent nurse, so we made them a nurse manager, and two completely different skill sets, right? And, you know, there were some nurses who were very eager to get into leadership and would invest and, and wanted to do that and uh, take some of the, the risk that comes with those those roles. But there were plenty of folks, and I've got them in my organization, too, who are amazing analysts, but they do not want to be a supervisor. They don't want to deal with people. They, they, they want to come show up, make our clients thrilled, and go home. And that's it. So... Where does the employees' expectations or hopes for their future? Where does where did those play in, and and what's the manager's role in in identifying that? Yeah, I I think that you do have to ennoble 
every single job in your organization, to, to let people know that what they do is worthy and important. Because really, the, the way that things are set up in American culture is the higher the pay and the higher the title, the better the job. Whether it suits you or not, or whether you're good at it or not, we, we have these aspirations and expectations. But when people know that work they love, work they do well, is also very, very important and that they can be dignified in their own right within that role and to make it okay, that matters. And perhaps you have job grades if you don't already have a system, but, but those are one way when done well that you can dignify people in a certain role. Same job, level one level two, level three, and that represents years of experience, uh, performance over time, and opportunities to to tell people you don't have to go into management to, right. to be recognized around here. And here are the competencies that level two has or, you know, versus level three versus level one. And, and then we've got a competency system set up in our organization. And most of my employees know what everybody else is making because they can do the math. They know, they know what everybody's competencies are and what they're checked out to perform, what kind of activities are checked off to perform and you can just do the math and it's it's equitable and uh ever you know everybody knows you know and there are people who choose oh i hate doing that i don't want to you know uh and i will try to get them to at least get checked off for the competency so they can back up somebody uh in the organization if somebody's out and the the pay raise is you know eternal i mean as soon as they've got the competency whether they use it every day or not we we want them to you know benefit from it. But um, I think that's really important is, is, you know, leadership is not my, is not for everybody. As actual, and I say leadership's not, those frontline employees who are the, the individual contributors who show up and, and solve problems and get things done, they're leaders by example. And, and I think we, you know, we underestimate sometimes the contribution that they make uh, to the organization. And, but um, just having, and, I, and we've also seen plenty of great individual contributors messed around and messed on by so-called leaders who who weren't very good leaders and uh, and just you know made those people frustrated to the point that they left and found you know found someplace where they were better appreciated. You know, Mike, if I had a magic wand and I could change the way one word is used in organizations worldwide, it would be what you're referring to. I would I would disallow the word leader being used to represent any sort of hierarchy or position on the org chart. Mm -hmm. uh, that's upper management, senior management, call them executives, call them anything, but don't call them leaders because that title is available to anybody at any level. I mean, you can watch two-year-olds in a sandbox and, and see leadership. And yet we we have people opting out because they don't think they have the title or they don't manage, uh, have other you know people who are directly reporting to them. And so they, they think that they can't lead when in fact they can and they do. They just, since they're not intentional, they're, they're leading people perhaps in ways they wouldn't intend to. Yeah. And I, I don't like the term manager because I don't think you can manage people. You can manage processes. You can manage computer code. You can manage a lot of things to get specific output. People are a hot mess. They show up different every day. You know, uh, you know, it'd be like buying your your paint from three different suppliers on three different days. Uh, for, you know, it's the same thing for, with people. The people that show up that left the office at five o'clock yesterday and showed up at eight o'clock this morning could be the very a very different person because of what happened in the intervening hours. And and we've got to realize that. And so I don't like the idea of even managing people. That maybe we. I see what you're saying about leadership, and maybe we need something. You know. 
really what we need are, from that management level are people who facilitate their the other employees' success and in their roles. And and maybe we just need a better name for that. Well, the origin of the word leader, the, the original meaning of it was was guiding. And I just, I like that oh, visual, yeah. right? You, you guide people to a, a new place. Um, our, our tagline for our management training program is that you have two jobs and simultaneously you have to manage work and lead people. And I get a lot of questions about that, but it's as you just said, right? It, it, th- they're different skills and they're both really important and you have to know what that, that balance looks like. So, we, we're, we've matured our organization now to the point where we're we're investing in all employees. Everybody's getting training. Everybody's, you know, on both the technical competencies that they need to do their job well, but also those interpersonal, um, you know, that said Lisa Blanton when she was on uh, uh, in December said we have, uh, you know, the soft skills are the hard skills, those people skills, uh, but we're investing in people on those too. And so every, we've got an organization that's continually learning and, and, and developing. But at some point, don't I, as an executive, uh, need to have a conversation with those people that I've identified as, hey, this is really somebody who, you know, I need to have a different level of commitment, you know, or understand, gauge their, co- their commitment and interest to being in the next level of, of management for the organization. Um how do I have that conversation without either over over promising what their future holds? Because we've all seen where, you know, that, that doesn't always work out and uh, versus uh, leaving them in the dark and them thinking, okay, nobody's ever mentioned to me about, you know, becoming a lead, you know, a, 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 an executive or a leading manager in the organization. So it's time for me to look elsewhere. So how do we have that conversation without alienating the other employees who, who may figure out along the way that, uh, you know, that, you know, Joe and Mary are, are both air, air designates to the, to this leadership role. Well, what if you were asking everybody a, a little bit broader question, and this is the foundation of a stay interview, you know, what would you like to be doing long-term and what are you doing to prepare for the long-term? And as people are talking about that and, and taking ownership of their own development, Certainly in that conversation, there's room for what are your thoughts about leadership? And I, I, I want to gauge your interest in these kinds of educational opportunities that would give you a pathway there. Um, and it, it, when it's unique, when I'm only having the conversation with, with Mike and no one else, right? that's where favoritism creeps in. But if I'm having these similar conversations with everyone, it's just part of what we do around here. Okay. And, uh, and at some point... I, you know, a leader says, "Hey, I'm retiring in a year, or or it's time for me to do. I want to I want to move out of operations over into HR or accounting or you know finance someplace, uh, and we start putting that plan together. That's when we would really go and start having a a, a significant conversation with the part the individual based on all the metrics that we put in place." That hey, this is this is an opportunity that may come open in the next six to nine months or whatever. Is this something that you'd be interested in pursuing? I saw something really interesting exactly once in, in my career, and it was for a company that sold propane, but they were in multiple markets. Um, and it was the CFO who had a very very talented team of, of people, and he said, "I'm going to be retiring in five years. I'd like to take applications for my successor." And then 
having made some decisions about the top, I don't know if it was two or three, right? That there were development pathways so that they could vie for that job. But it was an open internal who wants to apply mm -hmm. at the very beginning of it. Yeah. And I, and, uh, We've had we've had that experience. I had a my my right hand person uh, of thirteen years uh, decide she wanted to do something in a completely different industry and outside of or at least outside of what we do as a company. And I negotiated a year with her. We identified internally, you know, the strongest candidate and uh, who was actually interested because some others weren't and uh, and spent a year developing her, getting her ready for that role. And everybody transitioned, you know, happily. And so it's and it's been really good. So it's for the long term as opposed to the scramble. Right. Uh, someone's retiring next month and who can we plop in the seat? Right. Yeah. And that's that's always, a you know, the warm body. You know, and, and I think we're going to see a lot of organizations in the next few months really begin to feel the results of the last 18 months of warm body in a seat. Just put a butt in a seat. That's all I need. Just, you know, just put somebody, fill the, fill the wreck, fill the wreck. So, well, is there anything else you think, uh, we're almost out of time, but anything else, parting thoughts you think uh, we, uh, somebody who's really struggling with these issues would, should take away? Well, I, you know, I would say that when you think about the nine box model differently and you think about unleashing the potential of people uh, not not grading the potential, but unleashing the potential. And when you think about what, what you and I have been talking about here, leadership at every level, um, I think it affords people the opportunity organizationally to think about distributed leadership, not distributed management, not titles, not not raises, uh, but but just how do you get to this place where everybody's participating and everybody sees themselves as as leaders in their own right? And that is what would drive you to consider a different nine box model and a different um, process for succession management. It would, it would liberate people. It would be a great retention and engagement tool. So we'll leave that as, as food for thought as we wrap up. Well, that's great. Well, that is all the time we have, but thank you so much for joining me today, Deb. Thank you. I've really enjoyed our conversation, Mike. And thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guest at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week, and until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.